0: Still can't hear me. Now you can hear me. Totally my fault. As I was saying, Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City when 9-11 happened. And when he writes about that time, he says it's as though the whole city sank into a kind of corporate clinical depression. He says, for my family, the shadow was intensified as my wife, Kathy, struggled with the effects of Crohn's disease, and finally, he says, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Um, At one point during all this, he says, my wife urged me to do something with her we had never been able to muster the self-discipline to do regularly. She asked me to pray with her every night, every night. She used an illustration that crystallized her feelings very well. As we remember it, she said something like this. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget, you would never miss Kathy says, well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it just slip our minds. I'm not sure if she was fully aware of it at the time, but Kathy Keller was pretty close to quoting Jesus in Mark chapter 14 when she said that. So if you'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, I'll, I'll show you what I mean as this unfolds, um, but let me pray for us once again, just as we receive the word together. Oh God, be kind to us now, that we might see Jesus, that we might receive the love he has even for us, the likes of us, and we might love him all the more. By your spirit, we ask you to do this in Christ's great name, amen. So as Daniel mentioned, the setting in Mark chapter 14 is uh, Thursday night. We call it Maundy Thursday. It's just hours from Jesus' crucifixion the next morning called Good Friday morning. And Jesus has been showing his friends the full extent of his love from every angle. He's washed their feet in a display of love. He taught them to love one another as he loved them. He prayed about His love for them, saying He loved them with the same love the Father had for Him. He shared a meal with them that was a picture of His love. And now He takes them to be with Him for the last time before the cross. In loving care for them, He takes them with Him so that they can pray. Verse 32 is where we'll start. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I pray. So the disciples followed Jesus to a garden. It's called Gethsemane. Um, you can see it on the map up there just to the right of the Temple Mount, off to the right corner. I put it up there because I want you to know this is an actual place. These are actual events. We're talking about history here. And evidently, Jesus took his friends there often to pray, and that's why he went there this night to pray with his disciples and to be abandoned by them. Jesus, it's it's fascinating, Jesus wants to spend his last voluntary hour before the cross in prayer with unfaithful disciples. Don't miss that. Jesus knows they're about to abandon him. He knows. And yet he still wants them with him so that he can pray. Why would Jesus, part of the Trinity, why would he need to pray? Well, on the one hand, I suppose you could say it's because he is fully human. When he came in the incarnation, he became fully man. Fully man and fully God. But on the other hand, I think it's helpful to realize that prayer is first about communion with God... Before informing him or getting things from him it's first of all about communion with him and on this night above all nights the son needs the nearness of his father in prayer look at verse 33 Jesus took with him Peter James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled and he said to them my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch so going deeper into the garden jesus takes just three of those remaining 11 disciples remember jesus, judas has defected and gone to betray him but he picks three peter james and john why these three are invited to come pray with him and i i suppose it could be because these three will become something like pillars in the early church and maybe pillars need more training in prayer Or maybe they just needed the extra time in prayer for humility's sake. You remember James and John, the sons of thunder, they're the ones who said, Jesus, we can drink of your cup, no problemo, we got this. And Peter was the one who just said, hey, all these guys, they might fall away. I'm not falling away. But personally, I wonder if these three weren't simply Jesus' closest friends And in his darkest hour, he wanted praying friends to be with him. Remain here, he says, and watch, that is pray. And Matthew adds this little phrase, with me, with me during my darkest hour. See, Jesus wants these three with him. And this is one of the truly amazing teachings of Scripture God desires the company of failing disciples like you and me. He wants our company. That's that's what all of history is pointed towards. Everything is working towards that end. Listen to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Everything is pointing towards that. And the unworthiness of these three disciples isn't enough of a deterrent to overcome the love of Christ for them. And neither is yours. This was really, really a dark hour for Jesus. He began to be sorrowful, Um, The language in Matthew is he was sorrowful and troubled. Um, Some people have rendered it depressed and confused. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it this way, a sinkhole, he entered a sinkhole of dreadful agony. Professor James Edwards says, nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Neither the laments of the Psalms, nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom. He goes on to say, according to Mark, the decision to submit to the Father's will causes Jesus greater internal suffering than the physical crucifixion on Golgotha. So it sounds strange to us. Jesus is depressed, Jesus is confused, Jesus is discouraged. Isn't that wrong to feel that way? It's not wrong. It's just human. Remember, Jesus became fully human in every way short of sin. He became one of us. He suffered like one of us. He didn't become a robot. He didn't become Superman. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he took on our likeness, our form. And here we see it on display in the garden, perhaps like nowhere else. He bore a sorrow that felt like it would kill him. And so he did what you and I must do when we're depressed and anguished and dismayed. And we feel like the world is about to crush the life out of us. We must draw praying friends near to us and we must pray. Following this simple example of Jesus can make a world of difference in your dark hours. But verse 35 says, Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So even Jesus' posture belies his agony On his face, he prays to his father, pleading, yet ever so submissively, that this cup, if there's any way possible, might be taken from him. The cup is a picture of the wrath and judgment of God upon sin that Jesus is about to drink fully of on the cross. It would, for the first time ever, tear a gap between the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity as he bore the sins of the world. And Jesus wishes it didn't have to be this way. Is this this wrong for Jesus to feel this way? Is it sin for Jesus, for the Son, to plead with the Father to change his plan? To spare him such sorrow? Maybe if that's all there was. But there's more to Jesus' prayer, right? He almost simultaneously yields to the Father's all-wise plan, and he says... Not what I will, but what you will. Theologian John Calvin said that honesty in prayer that leads to submission to the Father's will is hardly sin. It is the greatest of temptations, perhaps, but it is not sin. And so the Son is struggling with the suffering that the Father's will entails. Does that sound familiar? Is that how you feel in your dark hours? So when you're there, know that Jesus has been there too. He knows your dark sorrows. Hebrews says that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Your high priest knows the darkest of sorrows And depression and he chooses to trust and to obey his father and he's with you as you fight to do the same thing listen to Professor Edwards again he says what profound irony Gethsemane conceals for when Jesus feels most excluded from God's presence he's in fact closest to God's will Gethsemane is the prelude to Calvary for in a valley beneath the city Jesus allows his soul to be crucified and on a hill above the city he relinquishes his body. And in verse 37, he came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So I think the disciples, these three disciples, really wanted to be there for Jesus, but their eyes, it's going to say, were too heavy. And you know what that's like. You know that struggle. I've watched you battle that right here in church, right? Uh, If you've ever hit the snooze button right through your morning devotions, you know what this is like. You want to get up, but you're just too weary. Jesus calls them to an hour of prayer, not just for His sake, but for their own. Extended times of prayer, even in the darkest of hours, have a great power to safeguard our heart from the temptations that would ensnare us. And yet the disciples failed to watch, not not even for one hour. They were too weak. Perhaps that's why He calls Peter Simon here that was his name before he followed Jesus so you spend an hour in prayer lately the three are really struggling to do that here And so in verse 40 again Jesus came found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him so a second time Jesus finds them asleep instead of in prayer And then for a third time, Jesus chooses to go and pray, again, offering himself in submission to the Father. Your will be done. So Jesus is set up here as a contrast with his disciples. They fail to pray, and they're going to fall into temptation. Jesus chooses to pray, and he prevails over it. Prayer fortifies the soul against temptation. Look at verse 41, he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And I always wonder, why does Jesus keep coming back? I don't think it's like he needs a little break from prayer. I think he's coming back to check on his friends He's concerned for his friends. Even when they are failing him, he is concerned for them. And so for the third time, we find Jesus in his darkest hour, concerned that his soon-to-be unfaithful friends will be kept safe from temptation, if at all possible. What wondrous love is this, that knowingly loves those who are about to desert him. It's the love with which he loves you and me. And the three are found sleeping a third time. Professor Dale Bruner says, Peter's three denials in the courtyard follow Peter's three naps in the garden. If we do not say our prayers, we cannot resist our temptations. It is that basic. Watch and pray, Jesus says, lest you fall into temptation. And now, Jesus unfalteringly faces his arrest and all that follows. Why does he seem to be more willing now, more fully yielded to the Father's plan now? Our only clue is that he prayed. And Jesus, it would seem, benefits from prayer even as he urged his disciples to. It protects him from temptation. He is, as Hebrews puts it, learning obedience. Extended prayer fortifies the soul from temptation even in those darkest hours. Again, remember, prayer is first about communing before it is ever about getting. It's drawing near before it's about receiving from. There is a power to fight temptation That comes from taking time to draw near to God and doesn't that just make sense I mean if we draw near in prayer to the Holy One who loves us shouldn't that shake temptations grip on us Kathy Keller this is why Kathy Keller had it right and she's virtually quoting Jesus when she says if we don't pray together to God We're not going to make it because of all we are facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it just slip our minds. So do you have patterns of prayer to help you resist your temptations? You know what they are. Do you have patterns of prayer to help you resist those temptations? Are there key scriptures that you use to prompt and to guide You're praying. Is there time in your calendar to pray about these things? Now the plan is inexorably set in motion, and Jesus' following prayer is in full submission to the will of his Father. Dr. Danny Akin, the president at Southeastern Seminary, writes, Gethsemane is the prelude to Calvary. Before he could surrender his body to be beaten and crucified on the cross, he must first surrender his will to his heavenly Father in the garden. In the first garden, the Garden of Eden, Adam said to the Father, Not your will, but mine be done. And all of creation was plunged into sin. In this second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the second Adam, says, Not my will, but yours be done. And the redemption and salvation of all creation begins. Eden brought death Gethsemane begins new life. So, here in the garden, we find Jesus sorrowful unto death and seeking strength from his Father and solace in prayer. When he is suffering most, he remains concerned for his friends, the very ones who are about to desert him when he needed them most. When we fail Jesus, he loves us still. And down in verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him, lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. You know, whenever I read this portion of Scripture, oddly enough, the thing that I think of is Highlights Magazine. You remember these magazines? Uh, If you're old enough, they used to populate dentist's office. I don't know if they still do. They were intended to be a happy distraction from what waited for you. And uh, inside... It had a section that was called "What's Wrong with This Picture?" And you looked. The idea was that you would spend your time as you waited there in the dentist's office, trying to find what's wrong. And you see, everything's wrong. The tractor has square wheels. Uh, the duck is watching TV on the barn roof. Uh, another one has a surfboard in the pond. Everything's wrong with this picture. Uh, it seems like, but that's from our perspective, from the perspective of the reader. From the perspective of the artist, all is just as he intended. All the wrongs are purposeful. Like the title banner puts it on the front page, right below the title. Fun with a purpose. And that's what reminds me of our story today, except there's not much fun. I suppose the banner could read, sorrow, even evil with a purpose. It all seems to have gone so terribly wrong in our story. Yet it is just as the artist, just as the author intends. Every wrong in our story serves its intended purpose. A far greater good is being done. And so we find Judas, the betrayer, one of the twelve coming with a crowd, a mob of soldiers and religious leaders and such. And I can't help but wonder, based on what Jesus is about to say, if some in this crowd were part of those who celebrated his teaching in the temple earlier that week. But now they gather around him for a different reason. They are sent by the religious leaders, not to adore him, but to arrest him. And they're led by a disciple, one of the twelve, Mark underscores for us. And it all seems so terribly wrong that the crowds who had delighted in him, now they turn against him. And the religious leaders who should have proclaimed his coming with shouts of joy now send armed soldiers to arrest him. And they're all led by Judas, one of the 12 handpicked by Jesus himself. It all seems terribly wrong. And if that's not enough wrong in this picture, Judas has arranged that the sign of his betrayal should be a kiss, a mark of friendship has become the mark of betrayal. In Matthew's telling, Judas greets Jesus with with this expression, greetings, which literally means rejoice. It's just wrong. It all seems so terribly wrong. And then there's a bit of a skirmish that breaks out and one of the disciples takes up a sword and he cuts off someone's ear. John tells us that was Peter. But Jesus is the faithful son here. He will follow his father's plan, not Peter's. His prayer in the garden is now being played out as he's arrested. Not my will, but thine. Verse 48, Jesus said to them, have you come out as a, against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is no robber. He's not a terrorist. Those who have treated him as such, though, they will serve the fulfillment of ancient prophecies. And though it all seems to have gone horribly wrong, it is all according to the Father's plan. Same with the way it closes down in verse 50. And they, the disciples and all, left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So another horrible wrong, another fulfillment. Jesus had just predicted just minutes before that they were all going to fall away because of me this night. All of them drank the cup, all of them pledged to die with him, and now all desert him. This young man is singled out, he's anonymous, we don't know who he is, but seems he would rather suffer the embarrassment of running about naked rather than suffer with Jesus. Tim Keller says that by recounting this young man's naked flight from the garden, Mark may be reminding us of another garden. In the Garden of Eden, too, there were people who were given a test and they failed. They were exposed as naked and fled in shame. Centuries later, another garden and another test, and everybody fails in one way or another. They're either waving swords around or fleeing in naked shame. Everyone fails. Everyone fails except for Jesus. Jesus. That is, right? He is ever the faithful son. He is ever the faithful friend. He is resolute to execute the will of the Father and rescue his friends, even though it will cost him his life that next morning on that damnable tree. Such is the love of Christ for you and for me. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, help us to pray. Deliver us from from temptation. Help us to pray, to be people who pray, ceaselessly pray, faithfully pray. Jesus, help us to embrace you who love us such that you would suffer the burden of the sins of the world upon your shoulders the wrath of God in our place oh Jesus we love you help us to love you more we ask these things in your great name Amen